0: So apparently we are not only prone to major strokes when a blood clot blocks the blood flow to the brain and can do great damage, but also we, many people, are prone to minor strokes, TIAs, which are temporarily disabling, but we recover from them very quickly, often without being aware that they happened. So similarly, there are major tragedies in life. The loss of someone you love, the breaking of a relationship, um, having one's job or one's plans suddenly wrecked. These are major tragedies. But there are also many little tragedies, either accidents that we endure or wrong decisions that we make. They're not sort of major decisions, but they may be little decisions that add up. We recover from these little tragedies or mistakes but we have forever missed an opportunity. doesn't mean to say we don't get a second chance. God is always giving us a second chance, but we will never know what it might have been like if we had not missed that opportunity. The cloud of unknowing says that many people give up the work of silence just as they are about to make a breakthrough. Like John Mayne, the cloud of unknowing, like any uh, good teacher, doesn't try to describe the experience for us so that we can have a vicarious experience secondhand by reading what they think about it or how they describe it. But they try to encourage us to start ourselves, to start the practice for ourselves, and to persevere in the work, because it's not just a one-off four-week course. And this takes us really to the heart of the Christian understanding of contemplative life, contemplative consciousness, Even the most ignorant person, the cloud says, even the most ignorant person on earth can experience union with God in perfect love by practicing contemplation in the beauty of humility. He says some people walk a simple path, they seem to move into contemplative consciousness, uh, effortlessly and they meet the miraculous in the ordinary all the time he says others as most of us find it often at least at first uncomfortable this work of meditation it feels difficult it feels he says as if you're being attacked on all sides by that inner noise. And part of us just wants to quit, to get up and do anything else except sit there and meditate. We feel awkward, we feel self-conscious, we feel a failure. And it certainly doesn't feel very restful. But it is rest, the cloud says. This is rest. It's resting from worry and doubt. Two of our primary sources of stress and noise. And it is also restful in the sense that it makes us aware of another kind of work, that is essential to human health, mental health, spiritual health, and physical health, but a kind of work that we don't often give enough value to, and it's the work of purification. So, even though we may make a superficial judgment superficial evaluation that this work of silence is a waste of time, it's not getting me anywhere, and it's making me more restless. There is a way of seeing it. This is something that we may have to depend, at least at first, on others to help us to see it in this way, to see it as a freedom from doubt and anxiety, and to recognize the work of purification that is taking place in us. And so the cloud says, be humble and passionate in this work. Be humble and passionate. Persevere. This work, this contemplation, begins on earth but continues in eternity because love never ends. The Christian Understanding this work of, this contemplative work of silence, is the work of love. As we do this work, according to the cloud, we push our thoughts, or we let them fall, into the cloud of forgetting. There are two clouds, actually, described in the cloud of unknowing. One is the cloud of forgetting. And the other is the cloud of unknowing. So you have to drop your thought into the cloud of forgetting so that you can begin to move into this mysterious but welcoming cloud of unknowing. And he says, at first it's going to seem funny. It will feel funny, funny Not ha ha, but funny, weird. You will seem to know nothing and to feel nothing. And that's exactly why most people give up. Because you don't know, you can't define in a familiar way what is happening or what it means. So you feel you know nothing. That's not comfortable. And you also feel nothing. I should be feeling great peace. I should be feeling great love. I should be feeling Jesus is putting his arm around me and saying everything's going to be okay. (laughs) But we don't feel that. So, neither knowing or feeling anything, we think, well, this is a waste of time. But then he says, you will feel nothing and know nothing Accept a naked intent towards God in the depths of your being. A naked intent, a naked turning, a, 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 a basic, no frills, uh, pure orientation of your being, a turning towards, as we were just doing out in the courtyard learning to turn so it's turning towards God in the depths of our being and once we allow ourselves to feel that and to trust it then we learn to be at home in this darkness he says return to it as often as you can and gather all your desire into one simple word that the mind can easily retain. And then he reminds us that this contemplative work uh, is is, is a rhythm for us, say, the morning and evening meditation. It's a rhythm within all the other rhythms of life. When you develop that rhythm of daily meditation, you will find it changes your life in small and subtle ways. And then maybe one day you realize, actually, it's had a big effect on my life and how I spend my time, how I organize my priorities, and what I like, what I I really know I want to do. Most of the time, we don't know what we want to do. We just do whatever seems to pop up in our mind at that moment distraction, but as the rhythms of our being, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, as these different rhythms begin to harmonize and we begin to feel a greater wholeness, a greater peace, then our minds become much better able to discern what are our real priorities, where we should be putting our attention. So the cloud says, this simple work is not a rival to your daily activities. Not in conflict with all the other things you've got to do running around. You will go around your daily routines and this work will be at the heart of everything you do. Whether active or contemplative. So, we've constructed in our world a culture of massive external noise and distraction and overstimulation, which produces more and more compulsive, arrhythmic patterns of behavior. We've also constructed a world where we have lost the feeling of leisure. And that's why we've come here for this week. This is leisure. It's not productive time. It's leisure. It's what the whole of the life of Monte Oliveto has been about, monastic life, is a witness, not to productivity. I mean, the monks make beautiful wine and beautiful liqueur and... (laughs) I don't know, what other lots of the other stuff. And, uh, but it doesn't, it's not justified by what it produces. It's not justified by the numbers that pass through the guest house every year, or the profit that the guest house make or doesn't make, I don't know. It's not justified by any of that. It's, it's simply self-justifying as a witness to, uh, to an essential quality of life that has to be present not only in the life of the monk but in the life of the guests who come here even for a short time. But we've constructed a culture where there is no leisure. We see this in the high level of stress even when people are on retreat. Noticing, I was noticing today after breakfast, I thought, oh, this, there's a number of people sitting around, and I thought, oh, that's nice. They're just sitting looking at the flowers grow. Then I realized they were all on their phones. So, okay, you, you don't, you don't, we're not uh, grading you at the end of this retreat. But I urge you to take at least one day Where you turn your mobile phone off, put it under your mattress, or give it to Dom Ugo to hide (laughs) for you, and uh, just take one day without it. And it's very difficult. I realize that myself. But periodically, and this is a rare opportunity, because so just uh, and that would uh, there will be a you know withdrawal feeling of course because of that and um, but then you'll discover it isn't the end of the world and you have survived and actually you have reconnected to something essential we've replaced leisure today with entertainment that's how most people learn or, or try to relax or to chill out or to take time off, but it's not the same as leisure. Entertainment can be fun. I'm not saying you shouldn't have some entertainment, but we we overdose on entertainment. Look at our TV. We overdose on it. We've constructed it as a whole kind of religion. The celebrities and their private lives and programs about programs about programs and incestuous entertainment uh, activity. So that's not leisure as it is, has been understood in the great wisdom traditions. Leisure, time off, free time. Time to spare. Um, I got an an email before I came on this retreat saying, Oh, yeah, I hear you're going on retreat. I wish I could have some me time too. (laughs) (laughs) And I I hate that expression, me time. Because me time doesn't seems to me to, it depends what you mean by it, but it doesn't seem to me to capture what leisure is or what a time of retreat is about. It's more about what can I do to entertain myself and to do what I want to do. That's not quite the same. It might be, but it's not quite the same. So leisure is offline activity. That means you're not doing work, you're not networking, it's not to do with your education, it's not part of your job, you're not looking for, you know, for business, you're not controlling things. It's something that you do simply and solely for its own sake. It's non-productive in that sense. So it would be equivalent or similar to things what we we associate with sport, or music, or reading, or a serious hobby. The word hobby isn't very good, but I mean a serious hobby like bird watching. And the great example for me of a serious bird watcher was the man who, on his at his wedding reception. Got a text message to say that a very rare bird had been sighted in the north of Scotland. He was in the south of England, and uh, he immediately left everything <laughs> <laughs> and went off, caught the next plane to the north of Scotland to see <laughs> to see this rare bird. So that's like, that's well, that may be slightly compulsive leisure, I agree, but. But in a workaholic society uh, we look down on cultures that make time for leisure. We say, you know, they are, they don't work, they just sit around all day in the sun. It's the way the North American or the US Americans stereotypically see the Mexicans sitting around with a sombrero under under a, a tree drinking tequila. Um, that's you know they don't work. Uh, so the English used uh, used to see the Irish um, until the Irish got f- free free from them and showed that they could work as hard as anyone. So. Uh, all of this is a great challenge, uh, especially in those cultures where we have an aging population. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? So you, you may be hanging around with a variable quality of life for the next you know, for 30 years after you retire or more. It's not going to be unusual to live to 100. Already, so how do we handle this time? Of course, as the tax base of society breaks down, people are going to have to work longer and longer. But uh, this this question, this loss of leisure, is a major uh, of of the understanding of what leisure is. I think a major social and spiritual crisis at the same time. it means that we have lost the meaning of contemplation. Because you cannot practice contemplation except in a spirit of leisure. If you meditate just to do something productive, like improving your immune system or improving your blood pressure, that may be a good way of beginning, but it isn't taking you into the full meaning of it or the full potential of it. Having lost leisure and contemplative experience, the noise and the hyperactivity of our minds escalate. We find increasingly people will complain they can't control their thoughts. They turn out the light at night and their minds keep racing. They can't be still. They have to jump up and run around or go shopping. There's always, whatever I'm doing, I'm not present to what I'm doing. I'm always thinking of the next thing and all the other things I've got to do. So as this inner noise creates unrest and conflict and loss of peace, Nevertheless, there is a growing appetite for anything that promises a quiet mind. And that phrase, quiet mind, is a very popular phrase today. And it's something that mindfulness, uh, as distinct from meditation, something that mindfulness uh, promotes. And but meditation takes us further than a quiet mind, it takes us into a silent mind. We may be plunged at any moment, spontaneously, unexpectedly, unpreparedly, into the silent mind. But normally we have to work by stages, to do the work of silence that leads us into silence. We have to do it over time. It's a journey. We learn to integrate it into our, our daily rhythms of life. And gradually we reduce the noise of the mind, the hyperactivity of the mind. We learn to see and to listen. We reduce the speed and the volume of thoughts, and we discover, even within two or three days of a retreat, as I think many of us are beginning to do, what we are capable of and what we are really like, what we can be like. The great wisdom traditions, including our own Christian contemplative tradition, says, of course, when you start this work, you will find yourself confronted with a lot of noise and restlessness. Of course you will. But don't give up the work of silence just when the mind is beginning to become calm and more quiet because you are on your way to silence. Silence is not just the quieting of thoughts but it is the freedom from thought. In the Kata Upanishad there's a beautiful passage which describes um, God, we would say, or the Purusha, as the person in the heart. The size of a thumb in the depth of the heart. Remember, the heart is this boundless space. The size of a thumb in the depth of the heart, like the flame, like a a flame burning without smoke like a flame burning without smoke. Think of the burning bush. The maker of past and future, the same today and tomorrow, that is the self. This is who we are. And it is in this discovery of who we are, that we find, of course, who God is. This always reminds me of the passage in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever. So this is another way of understanding our experience of silence. It's not just quieting the mind of course it's better to have a quiet mind and quieting the mind calming the mind reducing the noise and the hyperactivity is an essential part of the journey and it will happen if we allow it to happen but it's the silence that is the real goal and the real meaning of it and this silence is our capacity to be without thinking about being, without planning what we're going to do next, or imagining what will happen next, good or bad. It is about being without thinking about what we were and the mistakes we made or the things we've lost and it's certainly about being without uh, (coughs) fantasizing about the past or the future so if we are truly silent we are simply silent we are in the present moment in which we are in God And and that uh, experience is not something that we are trying to achieve. This is the worst thing to imagine. It's not something we're trying to achieve. We're simply allowing it to become revealed, revelation, to, to become obvious, like a haiku moment. So opening ourselves, making it possible for this uh, truth of ourselves to emerge and manifest, that is what meditation is about and it's what these uh, days of retreat are about as well. And where that takes us in terms of our life, our decisions, our priorities, who knows? We don't know, that's what makes it interesting. I notice at the top of the, just near the restaurant today, near the uh, car park, there are three CCTV cameras. I don't know why on earth they need CCTV cameras up there. But, I'm sure there's a reason for it, but we're living in a world in which everything is being observed because everything has to be controlled. Everything has to be planned. Every new system, every new computer system, every new, every new development in a company has to be a product of control. And that compulsiveness to control is self-destructive. In the end. There is no freedom to be, no leisure. What we discover just by beginning this work of silence, and I'm not talking about some great mystical experience which will make you levitate off your meditation chair three inches, but as soon as we begin this work of silence, we begin to be free from this compulsive anxiety to control everything. And we also begin to be free from those forces that are trying to control us. Both within and without. And so it's... it's the, the, the best way of describing this process is not that we're mastering a technique, not that we are becoming expert at something, but that we are learning again the simple ability to receive a gift. That's why John Main describes meditation as the way we accept the gift of our being.